Behind every good story is an interesting person. This is Person of Interest for Q102's Jeff Thomas. Dr. Lakshmi Samarco is the coroner for Hamilton County, Ohio. She never planned to be the county coroner. Dr. Samarco is actually a neuroradiologist by trade, but she was appointed to that position after her predecessor and mentor, Dr. Anand Bhatti, died from injuries sustained after a fall in 2012. Well, she committed herself to the job on a more permanent basis by waging a last-minute campaign to win a full term. She won handily, becoming the first woman, let alone Indian woman, to ever hold the office of Hamilton County Coroner, and she's been making waves ever since. You've probably seen her on television, fighting on the front lines of the region's opioid crisis, and more recently, clarifying misinformation about the death of Otto Warmbier, a student from Wyoming who died from injuries sustained while being held prisoner in North Korea. We wanted to know what compelled Dr. Samarco to give up her lucrative practice to take on one of the toughest jobs in Hamilton County. So Natalie Jones and I sat down with her recently after she had just helped break ground on a new $55 million crime lab set to be built in Blue Ash this year. It's an elected position. Yes. Which I find fascinating because I wonder how often politics comes into your job as you know, you're a scientist. Too often. How do you manage that? Well, come on. Who? The, there's a reason why so many soap operas, you know, daytime soap operas, were based in and out of hospitals, right? Politics exists in hospitals. I mean, in every industry, in every business, in different ways, different shapes, and but but they still do. I mean, there's still administration, there's still department heads in hospitals, there's still people. There anywhere you're going to have a large group of people working, you're going to find politics. And this is different because it's elected and they're not all physicians I'm dealing with. So there are people that have in fact no clue what we do that I have to deal with because of the politics and because of a hierarchy of government structure. But I've made it my job to sort of educate at least the political people that I have to deal with on a regular basis, to educate them on what we do here, why it's important, what these people do on a daily basis, and what they've had to put up with for all these years in this cramped, inadequate facility. Do you examine every person that dies in Hamilton County? No. This office performs autopsies on unexpected and unusual deaths, accidental deaths, homicides, suicides. Somebody falls at home without, you know, an extensive medical record of, of disease or heart disease or stroke or, you know, um, end-stage cancer. If they haven't been seeing a physician for something more recently and then all of a sudden they fall and die at home, that's going to be a coroner case. Drownings, house fires, motor vehicle accidents, overdose deaths, child abuse, domestic violence, all of these things are um, suspicious deaths and uh, will be investigated. Some of the ones, some of the deaths from nursing homes where you know, there's a question of responsibility. You know, if somebody falls out of bed because the, the bed rail wasn't up, they might, you know, 
that'll get called to us, and usually we will look into that case. Now, we may not do an autopsy on every single one of those cases, but we'll at least bring them in and do what we call an external exam, where we'll view the body, take the photographs, look at the evidence presented to us, um, take blood and body fluids and check it for in toxicology. And so that's a different type of exam. How long does that take you? Well, autopsies take our forensic pathologists on the average about two hours so you're for not, a full autopsy. You're not doing all of them. I am not a pathologist. No. So we do have four forensic pathologists in the office that do perform all the autopsies. How many of these do you get a day, approximately? You know, when I started in early 2012, in March 2012, when I started here, we were doing about maybe two to three autopsies a day, average. Uh, We're double that right now. And what do you attribute that to? Um... Well, obviously, the opioid uh, epidemic and all the drug use, but that's also resulted in a lot more impaired driving, falls. Um, well, people are using, you know, and it's not just drugs, it's alcohol as well. That's up as well. So there are more industrial accidents. You know, if you're finding that people are using drugs while they're driving, well, they're not going to stop when they go to work or school or any other job that they're going to be doing. And so everybody around them is at risk. You're in a unique position here because you see the not just the resulting fatalities, but a lot of the collateral damage, too. Mm-hmm. What's the answer? There's a ripple effect. With every overdose death, there is a ripple effect. And, you know, the saddest part of that is the number of children that are being orphaned, the opioid orphans. And orphan doesn't mean that they, both of their parents are dead and gone. It could simply mean that they have no adult being responsible for their needs or caring about making sure that their needs are taken care of. You know, if kids are having to scrounge around for food, clean water, a roof over their heads, in the middle of winter, blanket somewhere warm. I mean, their needs are not being taken care of. And if all their parents care about or their adult caretakers care about is getting the next fix, they're essentially orphans. Yeah. They're having to fend for themselves. But they don't have the benefit of being registered into our county youth program, you know, youth and children's services program, because they're still officially with adult caretakers. So it's even harder for them, I think, um, than the kids that are in foster care because these kids have to be recognized first that there is a need. They have to come to the attention of somebody who can make a difference. What about this growing problem are people not getting? What are they not understanding? You know, um, in general, the opioid users are younger on the average than the prescription drug users and abusers. And I don't know if that's because they're more cavalier about it or because they think I really want to try that. I want that feeling. I want that intense high. What's everybody talking about? They want to satisfy curiosity, you think? Some of it is that. They feel invincible that if I try it. It won't happen to me. I'm not going to get addicted because I'm so strong. 
you know, that's only the mentally weak that get addicted. Trying it once couldn't possibly get me addicted to this. Oh, they think that's all a lie. They think me saying that, they don't believe it. But it is. It's true. And You can get addicted. Absolutely can. Just once. Even once. And that's not the only drug that that can do that with. But it's cheap. It's available on the street. It's cheaper than illegally buying a prescription drug on the street. I mean, that's 30 40 50 bucks a pill versus heroin and fentanyl slash heroin opioids on the street, which is about 10 bucks for a dime packet, they call it, you know, about the size of a packet of sugar. And the introduction of fentanyl into a lot of these street drugs, what was the purpose of that, or do we know? Fentanyl is 100 times more potent than heroin. In other words, the idea is to get you there faster, or it's just cheaper? Yes. Fentanyl is inorganic it is manufactured so the only rate limiting step on the amount of fentanyl you can make is your raw ingredients heroin is grown you have to have the poppy plant you have to have it grow the right light water you know soil conditions you have to have somebody to harvest and then it has to be processed so it's longer fentanyl is 100 times more potent so it takes less fentanyl to give you the same high as heroin. And cheaper. Could be cheaper. You don't know how they're mixing it. That's a problem. I mean, you have high-level dealers that may have a direct line to where it's being manufactured, and they bring in some, and then they distribute it to smaller dealers who will then take it and then cut it with other stuff, all in the interest of, what's the least amount can I put in there? Because then I can stretch my product and make a lot more money. Is the public education working? Or do we still have a long way to go? Have we have we seen a peak yet? Are we on a, a downslide of the horizon? I would love to say we've seen a peak, but I, I, I don't know that that's no. the case. Certainly there's a lot more awareness. People hear about it all the time. There are a lot more conversations about it. That's all good as long as it's having the desired effect. And who's to say that had we not started having these conversations a year and a half, two years ago, whether we'd be at triple the number of autopsies? Did you ever think that this would be your job no. when you were growing up? You're a Cincinnati girl. <laughs> I am. You grew I am. up here. I did. I did. We lived in a little apartment uh, when I first came to the United States. Um, my parents had a little two-bedroom apartment on How Lowell Avenue. You? I was six. Born in India? I was born in India. Yeah. Yeah, my parents were already here with my little brother, and I think the plan was that my dad was going to uh, he did his uh, he did his internship at the Jersey City Medical Center in Jersey City, and um, I think the plan was he was going to do his residency here in the United States and then go back to India. And when he switched um, his uh, specialty and then they moved to Cincinnati, they decided they were going to be here a bit longer. And my grandfather in India, I lived with my uncle's family in India, and my grandfather lived with us which is typical in an Indian in the Indian culture of having your grandparents uh, live with you. It's a joint family. And my grandfather was sending letters to my dad saying, you know, your children belong with the parents. You should, you should, if you're going to stay there, you should bring your daughter. So they sent for me. And, you know, I tell this story, but it's, um, it's interesting. I remember, even though I was that little, my uncle taking me on a long train ride from where, from where we lived to then Bombay, and then walking onto the plane with me, and it was a pretty big plane, so it might have been a 747, but there were two aisles, and I remember walking down the right aisle, 
put me in a seat next to this lady and then asked her to keep an eye on me and then told the air hostess and whatnot and then said goodbye and walked off the plane. You had to have been terrified. I had no idea what was going on. Well, maybe I you were excited. That. Maybe you thought this would be a great adventure. Uh, I, don't know. I don't know. I was six, but, you know, at least I was bilingual, trilingual at that point. At least I could speak English. So I remember that the um, air hostess, uh, when we landed in London in Heathrow, you had to deplane because they had to clean the plane and everything. So I remember her taking me by the hand and walking through Heathrow a little bit, and then we got back on the plane, landed in New York. That was the end of my international flight, and then my domestic flight wasn't until the next day. So my parents lived in Cincinnati, not New York, but they had very good friends in New York um, that they asked to pick me up. Well, the air hostess took me through customs and immigration and then turned me over to this guy I'd never seen before in my life. And um, he could speak the language that I spoke, which is Telugu, and could speak English. But, you know, he paperwork was whatever, and, you know, she handed me over and left. And... So he starts, you know, holding my hand, taking me across, and he said he had to drag me across the airport, kicking and screaming, saying I wanted to go back, and I didn't know who he was, and he said, you were kicking, screaming, and trying to bite me, and I think in this day and age, I would have been arrested. (laughs) (laughs) But he said, you know, I was a small, little brown kid with pigtails, and uh, and yelling at him in Telugu at the time, all the way through the airport. And then he said, I didn't stop until he, you know, named my parents and then said that, you know, he was going to let me talk to him. And so I went back to his apartment where his wife was waiting. And they're both physicians. He was a colorectal surgeon, and, and um, she was an OBGYN. And they didn't have any kids yet at that time. And called my parents. And then the next morning, they put me on a TWA flight. You know, that airline doesn't exist anymore. And we landed at CBG, and it was a bright, sunny August afternoon, and um, there wasn't a jetway, there were stairs, and my parents and my little brother were waiting for me at the bottom on the tarmac, and he was holding a little Barbie with a hot pink dress on. I still have that Barbie. Were your parents? It had been two years since I had seen my parents. I was four when they left India. What was that like? Do you remember? I remember seeing photos of them, but I didn't really remember them when I was yeah. six. I mean, I we'd spoken a couple of times on the phone, but you know, we're in, it's not calling like it is now, international calling. Then your parents, medical professionals. My dad is. He's yeah. a psychiatrist. You followed in not just your dad's footsteps, but the I guess the, the people that originally greeted you in New York. Yep. From a cultural standpoint, is this something that you felt? Like, this is just what we do, you know, as we follow in the footsteps of our parents, or we take our parents' cues in the direction that we take, or was this something that you wanted to do because you had a passion for it? You know, I think that um, for most people growing up, your passions develop based on what you're exposed to and who's around you and your role models and those people that shape you. And, you know, for me here at age six, it, it was my parents and their friends, and a lot of them were physicians and, um, or engineers. So, and in India, too, I mean, typically, it's like, if you can't get into medical school or engineering school, okay, fine, then do something else. <laughs> you know, but that's, but it's, it's, 
it's kind of traditional and that those were the the top things to do and and then if you couldn't make it there then okay there are a few other careers you could follow it's funny because entertainment is so big in India now you know with Bollywood and the you know the biggest movie industry in the world and so forth but yet if you wanted to be an actor, I could tell you what Indian parents would have said to you. What? No, 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 no. You stick to your studies, and then, you know, we'll see. If you can't get into medical school or engineering, then we'll, we'll talk about acting. Right. You know? And yeah. I could just, it's, that's not something that they would immediately, but, but academics and scholastic achievement, all of that is ingrained in the culture. And, you know, you hear about tiger moms. Well, you can toss Asian moms in there because they're definitely tiger moms. Um, Indian moms as well. And but so, none of that would have mattered if you didn't have the aptitude for it, and you had the aptitude for I it. I don't think that was an option. I mean, I think that in most Indian families, not having an aptitude is not is it's not a really a realistic option for most kids. There, from the very beginning, you are pushed and pushed and pushed to achieve and what's expected. It's very clear from day one that anything less than straight A's is not acceptable. And you excelled past most of your classmates. But I think my parents took that for granted. <laughs> it was just, well, that's what's expected of her. Why it wouldn't was, she? It was expected. So they, yeah, <laughs> any other parent would pay top dollar to have a kid who was that ambitious. Not just that gifted, but focused and applied yourself. And you did all those things. But, you know, I think most Indian kids do. I think if you look at, uh, you know, I'm on the um, admissions committee for the med school. And you would believe the amount of talent in in the applications and the kids that apply now. And we jokingly will say to each other on the committee, there is no way I would have gotten into med school now. <laughs> you know, looking at what these kids are doing. I mean, it's not just the scores and the grades because they've got that. They've got all those. It's all the stuff in addition to that. You know, stuff that we that weren't that wasn't as emphasized when we were going to school. You know, I look at my daughter is now 18 and she's a freshman and in college and I look at the, the number of things that were expected of her between sports and music and and dance in addition to the academics and everything I'm like holy cow when do these kids get to be kids does your freshman and college daughter know what she wants to do you know I think she's she's my kid who's an out-of-the-box thinker I mean she's She's playing flute in the UC Symphony Orchestra, and she's not a music major, you know. And she, but she has this amazing musical ability, which she gets from her dad. But I mean, I played the piano, and I could sight read. But um, she plays by ear. She taught herself flute, so she has different talents. And so I have been trying to tell her for a long time: keep your options open. But again, I think we go back to what we're saying. It's what you're exposed to, who your role models are. And so she's kind of thinking medicine. But I think she's kind of thinking medicine because my dad is, my brother is, my sister-in-law is, and there's me, my husband, and my father-in-law, and one of my sister-in-laws, one of my um, husband's sisters. And so this is what she's exposed to. I'm probably the one person that keeps saying, Medicine's okay if you want to do it. It's not what it was, you know, 30 years ago when I was thinking about going into it. How is it different? different? And we should say for people who are listening, you're a radiologist. Yeah, I'm a neuroradiologist. Neuroradiologist. Mm -hmm. I may be the only neuroradiologist coroner in the country. Most radiologists and neuroradiologists are pretty busy in clinical work and 
would not take a step back in their careers to do this because not only is this a huge time um, commitment, but it's a humongous financial loss to the family um, compared to what your average neuroradiologist makes. The everyday life of a radiologist, neuroradiologist, you have to be available. You have to be able to read the scans and your and the films as they're coming out and be able to talk to clinicians and interact with them and then do procedures on patients and biopsies and drainages and lumbar punctures and myelograms and angio- angiograms and so and and sitting in an office being the coroner, you can't do that. You can't be available for your patients as you would need to as a full-time neuroradiologist. So, no, I didn't set out to, to be a coroner. I mean, my, my career choice to go into radiology. So the training for radiology is after medical school, it's five years of residency, including a one-year internship. And um, so then and you take your boards, and, and I'm a board-certified radiologist. So I can do... I, all the general radiology, plain films to mammograms to nuclear medicine, CAT scans, ultrasounds, etc. And then I did a two-year fellowship in neuroradiology afterwards at UCLA. So I spent two years learning more about one aspect of radiology, which is imaging of the brain, neck, and spine. So with that extra training, that makes me a specialist in imaging of the brain, neck, and spine. And um, I came back to Ohio, and I joined the Cleveland Clinic, and um, was faculty there for about three years. And then we moved to Baltimore for a year for my husband to do his fellowship. And my daughter was actually born in Baltimore. And then um, we moved back here to Cincinnati. And I joined um, a group as a general radiologist, but with the neuroradiology. So I was doing a lot of MRIs, because that's one of the things that neuroradiologists do a lot of. And then um, while my kids were young, but not super young, I was six, I guess. My son was six and my daughter was nine. Um, I wanted to explore an aspect of radiology as a career which was growing, and that was the teleradiology, to be able to work from home, to not have to drive in in a snowstorm in the middle of the night and take care of patients and and can I do this from home? Is it possible? So I actually did uh, part-time, I was working from home and then part of the week I was going into the hospital and then I wanted to switch to completely from home. So what I gave up with doing that is the procedures. So I, I wasn't doing anything that required needles, knives or stitches or anything else. But I was still able to do all the film reading, all the MRIs and CAT scans and read all those and dictate from home. And so I was doing that when the previous coroner passed away suddenly. The previous coroner was an old friend. So when I was a kid in Cincinnati, you know, there were 40, 45 Indian families here when I first got here. And we knew everybody. We all knew each other. We would have dinner at each other's houses at least two or three times a month. And I was probably one of the older kids in the community at the time. I think there were maybe two other kids who were older than me. So Dr. Bhatti was an old family friend. He moved to the United States. Uh, he moved to Cincinnati a year after I did. 
So I had known him since I was seven, you know, six, seven years old. Because they didn't have kids at that time. You know, all the other kids, when we'd get together on the weekends, they were everybody's kids. It's, part, it's a cultural thing, too. And, our, and in our culture, you don't call your parents' friends Mr. and Mrs. or Dr. and Mrs. or Dr. and Dr. You don't call them that. You call them auntie and uncle. Everybody is auntie and uncle. So whether you use their first name attached to, like, Uncle Bati, I would have, you know, or Uncle Anand, but um, he was uncle. And that's the respect. If you called him Dr. Bhatti, he would have been upset because only strangers, people outside of the family community would call him Dr. Mm. No, no, it's uncle to you. So we were all pretty close. And um, when I started med school, I wanted to deliver babies. That's what he did. And so in third year of medical school, when I was on my OB rotation, I was actually a good Sam with him. And he let me first assist him on cases, and it was really interesting, and I had a great time. But what I realized during medical school was, although I love delivering babies, <laughs> um, I like my sleep a lot. <laughs> and that was a lot of loss of sleep. But more than that, it was the gynecology part of it I didn't like as much. And so the obstetrics I loved. And um, I decided that there were other things. You know, I, I liked orthopedic surgery and really thought about doing orthopedic surgery. And then I realized what I really liked about orthopedic surgery was reading all those films. You know, that was the, it, they were aesthetically pleasing, but it was like putting pieces of puzzles together to come up with the answers. And that's what's really cool about radiology. You get this information, whatever little information, but it's in front of you. And it's up to you to glean that information out of each and every one of those films, each and every one of those images, to come up with some answers for the patients and their doctors. And the other thing is, is that, you know, I was an engineer in undergrad. I was an electrical engineer. So you were kind of a slacker, really. I was. <laughs> well, I was a math and science kid. I mean, I was a math and physics kind of a kid. So electrical engineering, you know, there's a lot of physics involved in that. What there is in radiology, too. In fact... One day, we have a two-day written board exam, and one day is radiology physics. It's all physics. That was the other part about radiology that was really cool, because it was very technical. It was very techy. It was, it was computers and, and software and, and creating things and, and manipulating images, and that part of it appealed, too. So then I switched to radiology, and I remember telling Dr. Bott, I, I went to his house, because he'd written a lovely letter of reference for me and everything, and and I went to his house, and he was okay with me going into orthopedic surgery and not OB, but then I went in, and I said, I switched. I'm going to go into radiology now. And he, there was silence in the room. And he said, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> and I said, no, I really do want to. And he said, no, no, what a waste of surgical hands. I'm like... I'll find something to do in radiology that, that requires that. But it was funny. He was like, and then he, he did support me afterwards. And then, um, and I remember when he took this office and I was, we had moved back to Cincinnati and it was really important for him to, for, for, for the Indian community to have a voice. And I remember, you know, growing up in different parties, and I would see him even during college and then med school, and we'd talk, and, you know, they formed the Association of Indian Physicians here 
when I was in medical school. I was their first student member of that as, as an Indian student, a medical student. And, and he, was, he, was, he was a president, you know, several years. And it was very important for him, um, and he would stress that with us, that Indians take an active role in leadership in the community because we're here, we're not going anywhere, and instead of just being the nerds, just doing the engineering and just being successful at their individual things, just having successful families, and, um, and, but being isolated from the community was bad. And so he said it's very important that we have a role and we have a voice. And, you know, when adults are telling you stuff like that, you're like, it's in one ear and out the other, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 I hear you. Okay, yep, yep, absolutely. Admirable. Great idea. But, you know, you don't really sit and think about putting that into practice. Because you're a kid. I mean, anyway, you look at it. Even if you're a young adult, you're still a kid. So when he had his um, fall and he hit his head, and he hemorrhaged into his head. His scans were read by quite a few neuroradiologists like me. And uh, somebody approached me who had helped him get into his office. That was Michelle Young. She had helped connect him with the right people when he had expressed an interest in going into politics and and taking this position when Dr. Owens um, had resigned. And so she had put him in touch with the right people. They were neighbors, you know, near each other. And, and so um, Michelle's son and my son played hockey on the same team at the time. And when I got the phone call that Dr. Bhatti had passed away, we were at the ice rink with our kids playing on the ice. And I told her. And she looked at me and she just said, well, then you should do it. I said, do, do what? So you should be a coroner. I'm like, what are you, crazy? I said, I'm a radiologist. What do I know about being a coroner? At that point, I had started my teleradiology business from home. And he goes, no, you should do it. I mean, Dr. Bhatti always wanted an Indian, you know, person in the, in the office, you know, in, in leadership role in the community. And it's, this is your chance. And it would be a great way to honor his legacy. I'm like, oh, great. Go ahead. Turn on the guilt. And I said, no, I don't know. I said, I've got a lot going on. You know, I've got, and, and you know, I just started my teleradiology business. And I'm, and she said, well, you should think about it. And um, I called my husband, who was out of town that weekend. And I said, Uncle Bhatti just passed away. And um, I said, then they need somebody to step in for, a, because they had five days, I think to appoint somebody as coroner or the board of commissioners would be able to appoint somebody. So if the Democratic Party didn't appoint you within that five days? I think they, I don't know exactly how long they had to appoint somebody before the commissioners could take over, but um, in order for the person's name to go on the ballot, they had five days. After that, so you weren't just making a nine-month commitment to f finish out his term. You were signing on to run for office to a campaign and the whole thing. Essentially, yes. Although they said it's still, you could still be a place card, you know, until we find somebody else. It would be a little bit more difficult because of the name change on the ballot and so forth. Like for example, Dr. Bhatti's name was already printed on some of the ballots and had to be, you know, that had to be changed 
when I came in. So I wasn't absolutely positive that I wanted to run. I mean, I thought initially that I could be placeholder um, until they could find somebody else. And because I had never done anything in politics. I had absolutely no interest in politics. I used to avoid politics like the plague. Anybody want to have a discussion? Don't talk to me about politics. I, I don't want to talk about it. Everybody has their own opinions. And I don't want you to try and, and convince me of switching. I'm just not interested. And didn't know the first thing about elections. I never did bothered with student government. I never had any part in any of that. And um, so, yeah, here was a total newbie who had no experience in the political realm or anything. And Michelle was very encouraging. And I said, okay, fine. If I'm going to do this, you're going to have to be the campaign manager because I don't know the first thing. And she had helped out on a few other people's campaigns in the past, but she had never done anything like that either. Mm. So that was it. I mean, we started and didn't my first fundraiser, because I'd never done anything like that before either, my first fundraiser was um, hosted by Dr. Will, Bill and Joe Selnick, and they were pillars of the Republican society. That's and crazy. old family friends. In fact, they had our engagement party at their house when Jim and I got engaged. And you ran on a Democratic ticket. Mm-hmm. Most of my contributions have come from at least that election from Republicans. Isn't that interesting how these types of things can happen in a small town? We probably wouldn't see this on a national level, would we? And Joe was, she came, she was a very forthright, plain-speaking person. And she called me up one day, and she was from Louisville, so she had that Kentucky accent, called me up one day and said, Lakshmi, I want to throw you a fundraiser. For my election? Yes. Like, that'd be great. <laughs> I don't know the first thing about it. I'll handle it. Don't worry. I'll handle it. We got a few things we got to take care of, but Bill and I want to throw you a fundraiser. And did you say, you know, I'm running as a Democrat, right? She knew that. But I've known you since you were a little girl. And she said, it has nothing to do with being a Democrat or a Republican. And she said, I have faith in you. You've already done good things, and I know you're going to do more. And that was the start. And I've had several Republican-hosted fundraisers over the years. So how long do you hang out and do this before you say, I want to go back to radiology or I want to do something else? If you ask my family, I've already been in it too long. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's work to do. You have the new building in Blue Ash. Yeah, that was definitely, you know, when I first started here, my very first day walking into this office, it was so funny because I knew where it was. I mean, I knew where the coroner's office was because I went to medical school across the street, right? We had to come over here and do two autopsies here. You know, we had to be part of two autopsies as part of our curriculum. So um, I knew where it was. So I called Andrea um, the first day. And I said, well, I know how to get there, but where am I supposed to park or, you know, what am I supposed to do? And, and she said, oh, well, you get the primo parking spot right next to the dumpster. And I'm like, <laughs> I said, that's perfect. I, I had no idea what she was talking about, but that's exactly where it was. Actually, that assigned parking spot for the corridor is right next to the dumpster. Wow. And I walked in and um, I actually walked in with some flowers for Andrea. That was my first time meeting her. 
and um, sat down, and there was a spiral-bound report on this desk right here, right in the middle, right in front. I still have it over there. And it is the assessment from Crime Lab Design that Dr. Bhatti had convinced the commissioners to order about this building, the number of people that work here, the equipment we have, the electrical demands, the space demands, the number of cases. It was a full assessment of the space and operations in this building and how woefully inadequate it is. And at that time, and that report was done in 2011, um, they said we needed 96,000 square feet to do what we're doing now and for the building to still be usable for 30 years. So we're at 35,000 square feet here. And we already have more than double the number of employees in this building than this building was built for. So it's time. I think it's way beyond. Have you had to fight hard for that? Yes. You know, I guess that's part of the problem with me coming from a private sector is um, I just look at things, and I mean, I'm, I'm a simple physician. I look at, you know, what the problems are. You diagnose what, what the problem is, right? Then you outline a treatment plan and you go with it. And that's not how government works. <laughs> You're not used to this kind of I am not used bureaucracy. to that. And so it was unbelievably frustrating for me because I could continue to say, wait, what part of this do you not understand? This building... I mean, we have to unplug the coffee pot in the DNA section to plug in another piece of equipment to do DNA work. I mean, that's ridiculous. Who, who has to work like that nowadays? This is the 21st century. I think they only got a real fire alarm here like six years ago in this building. You know, there's no backup generator for the body coolers. So if you lose power in this, in this old building that we're in... Nobody opens the coolers. They're not allowed. Because we can't afford to lose any cool air in there. How long before the new building is done? Are you asking me as the person <laughs> that's going to be pushing this through, or are you asking me to repeat what the project manager and all the other government types tell me? Well, now both. All right. Well, they tell me June 2020, and I said, yeah, that's not happening. I, I said, we will be moving in December 2019. You better make sure we have heat and electricity and plumbing in that building working because the trucks will be coming. We'll be back with more Person of Interest in a moment. And now, Person of Interest with Q102's Jeff Thomas continues. Welcome back to Person of Interest. Our Person of Interest this week is Dr. Lakshmi Samarco, the Hamilton County Coroner, who after years of secrecy is demystifying and bringing an element of transparency to the Hamilton County Coroner's Office. We'll talk about that coming up. Also, how Dr. Samarco is sparking interest in forensic science amongst teens here locally and why some say she helped cool a heated confrontation between the United States and North Korea. But first, prior to Dr. Samarco becoming our Hamilton County Coroner, Years of secrecy and mystery surrounded the coroner's office, in part because they never allowed cameras in the building. Why do you think people were, were resistant of that before bringing cameras into the building? You'd have to ask them. I think everybody's style of management and leadership is different. And I don't micromanage. 
I do not. Never have. Not even when I was, you know, director of MRI at several different centers. I always made sure the techs knew, and I do now with everybody that works in this office. Everybody has a prescribed role here. I expect you to be adult professionals and know your responsibilities. Everybody here has an unbelievable amount of talent. I can't even explain to you what these people do and are capable of. I don't want this place and the people in this office, to, I don't want them to live up to the adage of, oh, it's just government work. This is not just government work. What we do here is life and death, literally. And through the death investigations, we learn how we're failing as a society and what not to do again, right? I mean, that's, that's the important work we learn here. But then through the live criminal investigations and forensic evidence processing, we're finding out what's happening in the community that needs to stop. And one of those things is the um, criminal element, the drugs, the firearms that are out there, the DNA, the, the people that think they can get away with things that maybe have gotten away with things, but um, we try and help find answers for families. Um, you know, yeah, we definitely want to find the killers. Obviously, that's, that's one of our top priority things, but there's a lot of other stuff. We want to keep the kids safe. You know, and that's a really important piece for me, is I think that this office, especially with all the CSI shows and the forensic shows out there, and they're so popular and... It, it gives me an entrance into the world of teenagers and young adults who may otherwise tune me out because, yeah, I'm so-and-so's mom or, you know, yeah, that's just another one of those government types that's going to give me a lecture. They do want to hear about the forensics, how we solved cases that they've known, they heard about on the news and, well, how, how'd, they do, how'd they get that guy? They, well, let me tell you how we did that. And then we have that conversation, we build that interest in the relationship, and then we go into the lecturing, because there always is a lecture. And you know, more recently I spoke at a career day type thing and at a high school, and um, it was about science and you know, STEM things, and you think, oh God, yeah, chemistry's really boring. But look, hey, look, I've got four drug chemists upstairs. They're chemists. You know, the kind of stuff they look at every day? Well, the biggest thing with them right now is that every week we're finding new analogs, new fentanyl analogs, things that people have never seen before. These guys are discovering them, finding out what they are. They're learning the process. They're making them up as they go along. And then once they learn it, they've documented it, they share with the other labs. And the other labs in Ohio are doing the same thing with us. So there's a lot of collaboration, a lot of pioneering going on. We're in, in a realm that we weren't in five years ago when I started. I mean, the stuff that we're doing in this lab right now, we're setting the precedent for the rest of the country because of the stuff we're seeing. And the new lab is going to enable us to do that that much faster and more accurately. This may sound like a bizarre thing to say to a coroner, but it sounds like you love your job. It's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting job to love considering what you do. It is. But you're very engaged. 
It, it, yes. And, you know, people have asked me, why did you run for re-election? You know, why didn't you just go back, do your one term, go back out and um, go back to your radiology and neuroradiology and work from home, reading scans in your pajamas? Um, it's the people here. It's the relationships that we've built uh, with law enforcement, with the fire and EMS guys, with our charities that we support and and with the schools but mostly it's it's the people in this building and i think they'll tell you that they all sat here quietly doing their work really hard working people our crime lab director he's going on 38 years in this building in this building and he's funny because he has all white hair now he said well when i started it was all black (laughs) (laughs) but what people don't realize is he is an internationally renowned scientist. He's one of seven people that sets the standards on gunshot residue investigation for the world. He has a meeting once every three years that he convenes as the head of that group of seven people. They come here from all over the world to meet here. Actually, last meeting it was in Florida, but they come here and they have that discussion and they set the standards. He's also an arson specialist. So we're part of the arson investigation team in Hamilton County. And our trace evidence people work very closely with the arson investigators. And, um, you know, we had one of our people was on the dive team with with Hamilton County uh, Police Association. So it's a relationship. It's, you know, people, we have a great relationship with the federal um, law enforcement as well. We, you know, Tim Reagan, who's the resident agent in charge here um, in the Cincinnati area, he just said the other day they had a big bust recently and were able to, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office was able to prosecute some pretty bad dealers. And he made this big announcement that they couldn't have done it without the help of the drug chemists in this office. Wow. And normally they would send that off to Quantico, and he said nine, ten months, maybe longer. And I guess he called them, and they laughed at him and said, you're looking at two years on that. Oh, wow. And they were trying to get these guys off the street. So I got a phone call at 11 o'clock at night for one of the assistant U.S. attorneys saying, Doc, really need your help. We got this stuff. We got these guys, but I can't hold them if I can't say that this is definitely an illegal substance. Can you guys test it? And I said, sure. Somebody will be in our office at 6 a.m. in the drug section. Said, you have your person come to our office anytime after that and drop the stuff off. And I said, we'll get the results to you as soon as possible. They did at 6.30, and we had a result to them by noon. So you're not kidding. When you say that we have talent here, nationally renowned talent, this is talent that a lot of cities don't have. No. And people have no idea how much talent we've got here. And, um, you know, I went out to the L.A. County Coroner's office when I I was out. One of my friends was getting married in L.A., and I went to visit. Um, It was interesting. And they took me through their crime lab, and we were talking. And the guys, oh, you're from Hamilton County. I said, yeah. So then I guess, you know, Mike Trimpey and Bob Topmiller. Mike Trimpey is the crime lab director and Bob Topmiller is the head of our talk section. I looked at him and said, yeah, they work for me. How do you know them? Like, oh, well, I've, we've heard them talk at national meetings and everything. Everybody knows who they are. This is in L.A. And we have other people. I mean, one of our trace evidence specialists, um, 
was working on original research on ignitable fluids and how we collect and where in a burn spot we collect from and why is that important. So they had a theory, usually you collect along the edges of a burn spot because you think that's where it's burning, so that's where they usually used to collect for looking for uh, samples and for natable fluids. They thought, well, if the pore is in the middle, wouldn't it be a higher concentration in the middle? And the previous theories had always said, no, it all burn off and collect at the edge. Well, they did original research here doing just that, doing different pores and different materials and different areas, and then testing the amounts. And they published their um, findings in the Journal of American Society of Trace Evidence Examiners, which is their peer-reviewed journal. And um, the findings were actually exactly what they said. They had a higher concentration centrally in the in the burn area rather than at the periphery. So now every single arson investigation does it differently. In the, in the United States, at least, because of their original research. Who would think that Cincinnatians are yeah. setting those kinds of trends professionally? Yeah, they are. And listen, we've got everything from everybody from really nerdy, super intellectual uh, scientists and our forensic pathologists, as well as our scientists upstairs in the crime lab, to amazing talent and lip sync battle. <laughs> okay, now you're segging into something that you had some questions that these yes. are I'm going to I'm going to turn this over to you and let you. What do you do to get yourself ready for the day or to refocus yourself? It seems like you have I mean, a other lot than on your yelling plate. at my son to get ready and out the door cuz he's late every morning. I'm like, "Come on, we got to go." I have yes. to yell up there at least 5 times every morning. Why do you make me do that? Why do I have to yell at you five times? Why can't you just get down when I yell at you the first time? Are there any tactics that you use with yourself professionally to keep you on track? Is there like a picture you look at? Is there a song you listen to? Um, a prayer you say? Anything like that? You know, it's a staple in your routine. My family grounds me. Okay. They keep it real. And they remind me what's important. And in the morning, it's um, that's what it is. I'm just a, I'm just mom. You How know? many kids do you have? I have two kids. I have an 18 year old and a 15 year old. Ooh. And my 18 year old's in a dorm most of the time. Yeah. Although she's home for the holidays. A UC. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and my 15 year old's at home, but uh, they all ground me. And my husband's really busy. And, and in fact, he said the other day, I don't feel like I've seen much of you this weekend. <laughs> um, and it sometimes is a crazy schedule, but you know, my parents have been unbelievably supportive and always there. And, you know, when I get called off to scenes and I can't pick up my son from school and, you know, mom, can you, okay, okay, I'll go pick him up. He may have to wait 20 minutes, but I'll get there. Is okay. Okay. I'll tell him. And so there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of that, um, support and, um, you know, willingness to, whether they agree with my career choice or not, they're always there to support me. And I couldn't do this without, without them backing me. And that's all of them. It's my husband, my two kids, my parents, you know, my brother and sister-in-law that are in town. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the rock. That's what keeps me, that's what gets me up in the morning, keeps me going during the day and, you know, go to sleep at night. And, um, there have been, um, people ask me this all the time about the cases. You know, do you ever lose sleep? Yeah, I do. Imagine it's hard I not to. You that. There have been some cases, um, actually, very early on. Um, I almost quit. 
I just couldn't do this. I mean, there were some really, really horrific child abuse cases in the first few weeks that I was in office. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we had three in two weeks and it was just horrible. And I, and I went down for those autopsies and, um, I just thought, I, I can't do this. I just can't. It takes, and I, you know, one little boy, I still remember, uh, I don't think I slept for almost a week. Oh, man. It brought out a, a level of strength you didn't know you had. Or I had to remind myself what would happen if I wasn't here. Mm-hmm. And um, what could happen. You know, you asked a question earlier about it being an elected position. And, um, you know, 34 out of the 50 United States coroners are elected. And then in 16, they're medical examiners and they're usually friends of pathologists, but they're appointed by a group of people. And I never understood why coroners should be elected until I was in this office. And if you're appointed by a group of people, you are answerable to that group of people. They can influence, may, not necessarily always, but they could certainly try and influence your decisions. For example, something that happened to me, which is why I say this, (laughs) while in office, you could have some very important people in town that say, I don't really have anything to do with this case, but don't you think you should rule this way? I, n- no, I don't have any evidence of that. Why would I do that? Well, you know, the, the grieving family, and I said, are you talking about a lawsuit? Are you, so dollars and cents, right? So some of the decisions that we make in this office affect the bottom line for some people. And if somebody tells you, if somebody appoints you and says, well, we really think you should rule this an accident, not a homicide, because that's going to affect the family's ability to get X, Y, and Z. And you say no. I don't have any proof of that. Why would I do that? You're more, your position is vulnerable. And it could still be as an elected official. But on the other hand, I can just say, I don't have any evidence of that. And that's not what I'm going to do. And that takes a lot of guts. Because the, the, the president of the United States has second-guessed you. Tried. Conducted a diagnosis before... I know. Completed the investigation before you have. Which is why I had to have a press conference, because I wanted their record put straight. Because my silence was not going to be responsible for a nuclear war starting with North Korea. Dr. Samarco was talking about the case of Otto Warmbier there, the college student from Wyoming who was arrested and imprisoned in North Korea for stealing a propaganda poster from his hotel. Shortly after his sentencing, Otto suffered some kind of neurological injury from an unknown cause and fell into a coma. 
He never regained consciousness, and he died six days after his return to the U.S. North Korean officials claimed Otto died as a result of botulism and a sleeping pill. But his American doctors found no evidence of botulism, and the coroner's report was unable to identify the cause of the injury and found no evidence of physical torture on Otto's body. But that didn't stop President Trump from drawing his own conclusions, tweeting that Otto was, quote, tortured beyond belief. If you're going to make that decision, then base it on fact. And I'm going to present you the facts. And they're going to be scientific facts. Now, you can discount them all you want. It's still science. That box right there has virtual autopsies that we have done in this office. So as a radiologist... I have a unique background in being able to do that, right? Because I can read those. Without making any cuts, I can look at those scans, post-mortem scans on somebody, and tell you a lot about what happened to that person. Even before that first cut? And possibly not needing to make those cuts. Yeah. And um, in that particular case, you know, when there was a question of whether um, the victim's teeth had been manipulated forcefully with tools. I, I had a CT scan that, as I said, the beauty of technology now is that you can take those 2,000 images and be able to manipulate those into two-dimensional, three-dimensional. You can put different... Um, computer algorithms on it. So I was just looking. I took all that off and said, I just want to see the bone. I just want to see the jaw. I want to see the mandible. I want to see the teeth. I want to see the upper, lower teeth, the maxilla. I'm going to reconstruct it. Then I'm going to take the maxilla off, and then I'm just going to look at the mandible with the lower teeth. And then I'm going to spin it, and I'm going to turn it. And I, I was able to do all that and conclusively say that, no, there was absolutely no evidence of the teeth being manipulated. I knew that as a neuroradiologist, but we consulted our forensic dentist or odontologist, Dr. Frank Wright. It sent him the images, and he, did, he confirmed that. So what do we think happened then? What do we, what do we know happened to Otto Warmbier? What we know is that he was held long enough to erase evidence of anything conclusive. So... We know that his brain was deprived of oxygen for a long enough time to cause severe anoxic encephalopathy, which translates to starvation of the brain from oxygen causing permanent brain damage and cell death. That's incompatible with conscious life. And we'll never know. Unless, well, I said this before, unless somebody comes forward who was there can tell you what happened, and that person may not even be alive anymore. Or person or persons. But that's the importance of having scientific evidence, right? Is when people make statements, you can ask them to back it up. I wanted to ask him to back it up. I saw that tweet. I wasn't going to respond until I said, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You're talking about President Trump's tweet. 
I mean, parents are grieving parents. They went through hell for how long? Not having any idea what was happening to their baby. I can identify with that. I mean, as a mother, I mean, I, I'm getting chills even now, even thinking about it. What would you do to keep your kids safe? Can you tell us what the, what the tweet said, what Donald Trump's I think tweet about it? I think do you remember the words? Feeling of it. I think he said something about Otto being torture beyond belief. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And one of the reporters at the press conference asked me, you know, what do you say to that? Was he tortured? I said, define torture. And I wasn't being cute. You're going to have to narrow that for me because... By if, if by torture you mean, did he exhibit any evidence of broken bones, healing fractures, healing cuts, things like that? No. There wasn't any evidence. But if you asked me, was it possibly torture that caused his brain to be starved of oxygen? Absolutely. I don't know what they did to starve his brain of oxygen. I have no idea. There's lots of different things you can do to cause somebody to stop breathing. Could it have been something natural? Sure. And I couldn't tell you that, you know, did he throw a pulmonary embolus? Maybe. Did it stop the oxygen from getting to his brain? Did his heart stop? Could have. And they could have restarted it. Yep. If the heart stopped longer than four minutes and you deprived your brain of oxygen, you start seeing changes in the brain. So a lot of natural things can cause it, but a lot of unnatural things can cause it. Did they sedate him and didn't realize they gave him so much that he stopped breathing? Sure. Yep, that could have happened. I was trying to keep everything as scientific and objective as possible. Um, I didn't, you know, when I was asked opinions, I said, I'm not going to give you opinions because they're baseless. I can give you lots of theories, everything from natural causes to unnatural causes, none of which I can prove. And I said, so what use is making those statements? I, I couldn't tell you one way or the other. Why would I want to fan the flames? Is that if I had something to go on, I would make a statement. But, you know, at that point, it just didn't seem. And that's, that was, you know, like I said, I would never say anything about the parents because they're grieving and they have ways of dealing with their grief. And, um, you know, I felt really bad for them. And I actually had met them socially just the August before. Um, but I was concerned about their young, younger son because, you know, he's out there. And, and, um, and I, you always have to worry about that, you know, how that's affecting the people that are left behind. So... On a much lighter note, I mentioned earlier that Natalie Jones joined me for this interview, and she wanted to get to know the lighter side of Dr. Samarco. You um, want to see the lip sync battle video? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, were you in it? I don't, oh, okay. No, like, no, no, no. They wanted me to. I'm like, yeah, no, I don't have any talents in that way. Well, can you tell me what your one of your favorite things about Cincinnati is? Grater's ice cream. Okay, perfect. <laughs> All right. And what is your what is your favorite restaurant? Oh goodness. I don't know that I have one favorite restaurant. Um, there's Top so three. many great restaurants. Top three. I know Jeff can say a lot about restaurants. But in different categories. Like, you know, Italian, it would be Scotty's. Of course, Scotty's. And, the best day place in the world. And uh, for Indian food, it's Amma's Kitchen in Roselawn. Okay. Other than my mom's Never kitchen, been there. of course. Yeah. You know. Um, 
I think for uh, I love Vietnamese food, Pho Lang Tang. Mm, um, it's my favorite. You know, I love oh, um, uh, Chinese food. I guess it would be Oriental Wok. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many. Well, so if you on a Thursday you had to show someone you someone you idolized came into town or you really wanted to host for dinner and they said you have one restaurant to take them on a spur of the moment, you have an hour, where would you go? I guess it depends on how far I'd want to try. <laughs> we had to keep it real. I mean, at least you're not in L.A. battling that traffic anymore. Yeah. Um, and this is my favorite question to ask any human being. If you could be any female recording artist, who would you be and why? My kids will tell you I'm hopeless when it comes to me. Because I, you know, I listen to all different types of music and then I just sort of I I don't you know idolize any one musician I mean actually right now I've got several favorite groups you know Mm. I like Imagine Dragons and oh yeah but you know I also like Cake and Sublime was one of my favorite groups you know back when and so I don't know that I have a favorite female artist but um, I like Beyonce a lot of course Queen (laughs) Bee I think it's great. You like the band Cake. I got to meet them and spend a lot of you time did? with them one weekend. Oh, nice. Yeah, I got to host them, and they are all the coolest dudes in the world. Yep. They were awesome. Um, how did the TEDx... Did you speak at TEDx? I did. How I did, did that go? So TEDx was really hard for me. It was really hard for me because they don't give you very much time, but they wanted me to speak about a topic that was... Um, you know, the opioid epidemic, what we're seeing, but I wanted to make it something more personal than the impersonal that everybody gets. I wanted to make it more than just about statistics. And I wanted to make it more than just about the ravaging of the community. And I wanted, because it is more than that, and it is more than the effects on our, our healthcare systems and, and our EMS and our law enforcement. And it's such a broad topic, and how do you narrow that down to those six, seven, eight minutes that you might have to talk and still have something meaningful to say? Mm-hmm. And that was what was hard. So I wrote this all out, and I, w- I started off with 22 slides. And they're like, so you're not going to have time. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, you don't understand. My usual talks are like 90 slides. This is 22 minutes. And, I mean, 22 slides. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not going to do it. And then they, they, you know, chopped it down to like 14 and even then they're like oh, I still think it's too many and you know and then I, we did the we did the dress rehearsal or the re- rehearsal one day and um, you know I wrote the whole thing out which which I hate doing mm-hmm. and I did and then of course you know I had my things with me anyway but I started speaking and then I just got lost in the middle of it and then switch back to doing what I normally do, which is just speak from the heart. And then that was off script. And so that means the slides I had up weren't working. And um, oh my God, I'm telling you, I left that. And I came back here and I, I told Andre, I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I totally screwed that up. And it was just awful. And I said, I just, I, I, we're going to have to tell Jamie I can't do it. There's no way I can do this. And, I mean, I was stressed out. And Jim, my husband, said, I have never seen you like this. I have never seen you really let something, you know, make you cry uncle before. You just need to, like, pare it down to the bare minimum. You're trying to say too much in, in a short period of time. So I pared it down. 
remember I told you there were some times being in this office has been very difficult. Mm-hmm. And one of those times is one I wanted to share. And I didn't, so I, there were two performances that night, and the first performance I broke down. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that was good or not. He was like, no, 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 that got to everybody. I'm like, yeah, but it made it hard to continue. Um, and it was about um, an old friend of mine from high school. Because, you know, you take a position like this, you never expect to see your friends on the autopsy table. Oh. You never do. And this was somebody I knew in high school. It was a year ahead of me. I went to a small high school. We, we knew everybody. And Where did you Classes go? two and above and two below. I went Where to did you Cincinnati go? Country Day. I think I was the first brown kid to graduate from Cincinnati yeah. Country Day. Um, and Fred was a year ahead of me. And he was the nicest, goofiest guy. You know, it was a year ahead of me, but we, we all knew each other. Um, and he was hit by, uh, he was riding his bicycle, and he was hit by a drunk driver. Mm. And he was hit by a drunk driver at 5.45 in the afternoon and left to die. That's tough. And, um, I mean, that was tough. And I showed pictures from his scene from his shoe on the middle of the street to his helmet in a different position to his, you know, deformed, bent over, uh, broken body that had the force of the hit pushed him underneath a parked car. And tough to hear. his bicycle and the mangled bicycle, the yellow paint on the seat post of his bicycle from the car that hit him. Then the guy went and tried to hide the van to his parents' house. He tried to hide the van way back in the woods, not too far from his parents' house. And he had had six DUIs that he had been convicted of already. He had a suspended driver's license, and he had just left a bar on Round Bottom Road, drunk off his butt. And the bartenders all knew who he was because they were looking for a yellow car. They said, oh, yeah, the banana van. Yeah, we know who it is. That's when directed law enforcement to go find this guy. So he got seven years this time. He had just gotten out of jail for two years. He got seven years. And I wrote a letter, not a nice one, to the judge yeah. about, I said, I put it on this letterhead, but I said, I'm writing to you as Fred's friend. I said, you know, this really sucks. This was this guy's seventh convicted DUI and he killed somebody and you only give him seven years. I said, I want to know why he's going to be allowed to get out on parole to do this again in three and a half years. Because clearly he didn't learn his lesson. There are so many elements to this job that you seem to humanize, which is very impressive. I, it's, I'm getting overwhelmed thinking of all, all the things you're managing. Mm. And from like the politics, like this job umbrella is so much and it all comes the back to you said, don't like me, you know, well, of course, cause you, cause you deal with hearts and emotion and you humanize things. It seems. Well, I try to make it common sense too. Yeah. And it seems like common sense has absolutely no role in politics. <laughs> and I yeah. don't know what to do with that because you know, I'm a math and science person. It all boils down to common sense. Mm-hmm. And I have, when I'm talking to people, and I've, you know, a lot of things that we've done in this office, I lay out an Excel spreadsheet. I'm not kidding you. I will take an Excel spreadsheet in with me to that meeting and say, these are our figures. 
This is Cuyahoga County. This is Montgomery County. This is BCI. This is Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Michigan. Are you looking at these figures? Let's break it down to per tech, per chemist. Let me give you an example. We processed over 28,000 items in our drug section last year, 2016. I said, we have four full-time drug techs. That comes out to over 7,000 items per drug tech. Well, I wonder how many per day that is. Do, do you know what it breaks? Do you know what the next closest lab is? Cuyahoga County. You know how many they did? 2,600 per drug tech. My people are at over 7,000. And you're going to argue with me about hiring another drug tech? 42000 a year salary. Yeah, You're going to argue nothing. with me about that? Yeah. Because <laughs> we charge for drug services, whether they're in county or out of county, does not matter. Because of the rapid indictment process in Hamilton County, we have 10 calendar days from the time a person is arrested to process those drugs and have a report, final report, to the judge. 10 calendar days, right? Not like other counties. You ask BCI what their average processing time is. It's 28 days for drugs. Ours is four. With a lot fewer people doing three times the number of cases in a month. And, you, and we charge for their services. We've, the crime lab has brought over $1.2 million dollars into the general budget this last year. This is general budget. We don't get that money. The coroner's office crime lab does not get that money. All those funds that they bring in go into the general fund, which the commissioners control, which can be used for anything in the county. It doesn't get used for us. Mm-hmm. If I bring another person in, that's going to potentially go up to $1.4 million or more. So let me get this straight. For forty-two thousand a year in salary, okay, sixty thousand salary in benefits. Their income potential to the county is around a quarter of a million dollars. And you're arguing with me about that? I this is if you just talk business, this makes sense. So it's so frustrating to me to try and lay that out and then get the response. Well, we actually have a hiring freeze. I'm like, <laughs> You're preventing me from making income for the county. Does, does, I'm, that's what it boils down to. I have, okay, briefly. Um, what is this, the significance of the purple, bra- I mean, the pink bracelet you are wearing? If you don't want to My say My daughter it, made this personal. for me. Oh, okay. And it was for breast cancer month, which was October. Yeah. And um, it was for all the breast cancer survivors and people who have died of breast cancer. And um, I still have fun. I think it's great. Take it off. It's great. And our this job is way more complex than being just a simple neuroradiologist at this point. Um, are you excited? Or hmm, when that day happens, do you think you will choose to go back to neuroradiology? I will at some point. At some point? I will. I mean, it's, I still keep up with all my continuing medical education, and um, I still enjoy radiology. I still find it not just aesthetically pleasing, but mm-hmm. challenging. And 
um, I need that for my brain. Yeah. I think that um, if you don't have those, I mean, there have been a lot of studies even showing this. That's why, you know, all these um, websites that make you do puzzles and mazes and, and trivia questions and stuff that people, well, that actually stimulates your brain. And there have been plenty of um, brainwave studies that have been done that show how your brain can stay active. Because if you look at an MRI of the brain, and I can show you MRIs of the brain, of an 80-year-old who's continuing to work and be challenged, their brain doesn't look 80. Their brain looks about 55, 60 years old because there's still a fullness to the brain and not that crack at walnut open, you know, atrophied brain. Yeah. Which the average 80-year-old who's retired not doing that and maybe not doing anything actively to stimulate their brain, you will notice the loss of the parenchyma, the, the actual weight of the brain and the tissue. And, um, you know, I, I think we're up against a lot as human beings in the society the way it is right now with the exposures that we have. There's no doubt in my mind that the skyrocketing rates of dementia and um, Alzheimer's as well as all the other different types of dementia are, there's no doubt in my mind that it's, it's um, tied into environmental exposures, mm-hmm. yeah. things that we don't understand so we can't prevent um, but eventually they will, and, yeah. and and 20 years, 30 years, 40 years from now, people are going to go, wow, were they stupid? Look what they were exposing themselves to, you know, mm-hmm. like we do now about th- 30 years ago. But I don't have to help that, and I can't do anything about the environmental exposures, but we can do something about keeping our brains active, and I think that need for stimulation will always be there for me. And... Um, you know, I may or may not be doing mazes and puzzles, but, you know, mm-hmm. something. This, I think you got a lot that's keeping your brain ticking. Yeah, there's play. a lot of different things. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of different things happening. And in fact, so for all the people who I've forgotten lunch or dinner or, you know, I forgot to call you back when I said I would or I would follow up on something and you know who you are, I am sorry because, as I've told you plenty of times, there's only so many channels on my brain and they're overwhelmed. Um, Perfect. We can end with that. <laughs> yeah, but that's but really, I mean, for 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 me, I think um, we are so excited about the new crime lab. I can't even begin to tell you. We, you know, this the, the five years that we've been battling for this. Um, it's important for so many different reasons, not for just getting an actual facility and getting into a crime lab, but having windows and sunlight and being able to process evidence with actual natural light, which every other crime lab in the world does, but us. Um, but it's what it means to the people that are here, finally validating their existence, being noticed, being valued for the work that they do here. Because up until now, it's always been, eh, they'll manage. Yeah. You know, now it's give them the right tools and see mm-hmm. what they can do. Because, you know, I think there's an amazing amount of unrealized potential here and they've been held back by their situation. And so it's been it's been very exciting. It's it's not just that, but it's that that moral win. Mm-hmm. It was the right thing to do for the right reasons for the right people. And 
being able to go through the quagmire of politics and, and you know, having people tell you, yes, we're going to do it. No, we're not going to do it. Yes, we're going to do it. No, we're not going to do it. Yes, we're going to do it. No, we're not going to do it. Four or five times in the last five years of, you know, getting your hopes up. Oh, yeah, we're going to move into Mount Airy. No, not going to happen. You know, oh, wait, wait, Bond Hill. No, that's not going to happen. You know, and this mm-hmm. up and down that's happened. Um, that's why, you know, at the Blue Ash City Council meeting, when we discussed this and put this in front of Blue Ash City Council, uh, they asked the project manager and um, and uh, some of the county people, uh, well, when do you think, um, when do you think the groundbreaking is going to be? And he said, oh, probably be you know, sometime in the first quarter of next year. And they didn't ask me. I said, it will happen before the end of this year. <laughs> and he's nice. sitting there shaking his head. And I looked at him. I said, you're going to make it happen before the end of this year. <laughs> and um, then I, afterwards I said, okay, when's the deadline for signing, for closing on the land? December 9th. Great. Um, we can't do groundbreaking on a Monday or Wednesday because of the commissioner's meeting. Tuesday. When's the next Tuesday after the deadline for the land? December 12th? We're doing a groundbreaking December 12th. And I sent out an email to all the commissioners and, and Jeff Aluto, the administrator, and, uh, and a bunch of the judges and everybody else saying, we're having a groundbreaking for the crime lab on December 12th at 1 p.m. I hope you can all make it. Like Eleanor Roosevelt said, (laughs) behind every good man is a great woman. (laughs) Well, it was, yeah, there was a little more than that. There was a discussion with Commissioner Fortune to make sure that he was going to be available and nothing else was, and that they weren't out of town. And uh, Jeff Aluto and I said, well, you know, barring, you know, somebody's having their uh, gallbladder taken out, we're going to do it on Mm -hmm. December December 12th. And I said, and if you really need your gallbladder out, I could, I could, I could do it in about a half minute incision (laughs) and make it really quick. And then, you know, we're going to have the groundbreaking. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Our thanks to Dr. Samarco for being so generous with her time. If this was as interesting to you as it was to us, send us an email to POI at WKRQ.com. POI stands for Person of Interest. POI WKRQ.com. And feel free to make a suggestion for a future Person of Interest. Person of Interest is produced by Natalie Jones. And together we'll be producing more of these episodes in the coming months. So... Be sure to check back and don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. For Person of Interest, I'm Jeff Thomas. Thanks for listening. These are the people behind the stories that matter to you. Thanks for listening to Q102's Person of Interest with Jeff Thomas.